0: It's so easy to get sidetracked in our worship and focus on all the wrong things. We could argue about the style of songs we sing, the instruments we use, the volume that we set, whether we stand or whether we sit, whether we put our hands up or keep them down, whether we dance enthusiastically or kneel reverently. And as a result of all of those controversies and arguments and all that stuff, we could just lose sight of what true worship is really all about. Last week we looked at Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman. How he reached out to her, ignoring all of the barriers that could have kept them apart. How he was vulnerable and asked her for water. How he used and then used that as an opportunity to ask about living or to offer her living water. And then when she misunderstood this, he patiently explained to her the gift of eternal life. Then we finish by seeing Jesus he call her to repentance by confronting her sin. But even with all of that, this woman was still was not willing To put her faith in Jesus. Instead, she just tried to start an argument about what true worship is like. So we're going to break in to chapter 4 of John, John chapter 4 and verse 16, uh, to read down to verse 26. So, John chapter 4, verse 16. He, that's Jesus, told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you, that you now have is not your husband. What you, have said is just, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, am he. Initially, this woman, when she met him at that, this well at Sychar. Uh, just saw Jesus from a natural point of view. When he offered, when he, when, when he asked her for a drink, she said, you were a Jew. In her eyes, she was just, he was just a Jewish man who should be speaking to her. But when he offered her living water, she started to question who Jesus really was. She asked, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well?" She knew that her ancestor Jacob had dug this deep well to provide water. But if Jesus was offering something more thirst-quenching than that, was he really claiming to be greater than her ancestor Jacob? Well, that couldn't be true, could it? But then Jesus revealed that he knew all about her life. The fact is, you had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. This was beyond what any man could know. Even somebody like Jacob. This was supernatural knowledge. And it led her to that startling declaration. I can see that you are a prophet. Only an inspired spokesperson from God could know all of these details about her life. But accepting Jesus as a godly man, or as a prophet, or as a great teacher, isn't enough. It's not enough just to think bad about Jesus. Many people do that. You'll hear many people say, oh, yeah, I think Jesus is a good man, oh, I think Jesus is a great teacher. But that's not enough. Nobody is saved through that. We need to go further. Remember John's purpose for writing this gospel? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. But this woman wasn't ready to take that step. In fact, she quickly tried to change the direction of the conversation. In verse 20, do you see how, how much this just butts into the conversation? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, James, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This was the, the burning issue between the Samaritans and the Jews. This mountain eh, that she refers to here is Mount Gerizim. The holy site of the Samaritan people, which was actually in view from where they were standing at the well of Sychar. They, the the Smartans believed that that mountain was the place that Moses was talking about when he said that when Israel settled in the promised land, he said, you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from a, all, among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings And sacrifices. So they looked back into Deuteronomy and said, Moses was talking about Mount Gerizim. Now they were able to do this because they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as God's Word. The Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses. They rejected the rest of the Bible that said that God chose Jerusalem as the place of worship. So the Smartans built their temple on Mount Gerizim, about 400 BC. And they worshipped God there, until it was destroyed by the Jews in about 128 BC. So do you see what this woman is doing? She's trying to bring up a religious argument that has divided her and Jesus' people for centuries. But Jesus refused to get drawn into this. Yes, he dealt with this issue, but not as she expected. Jesus didn't get angry. He didn't get defensive. He didn't walk away offended. Neither did he get caught up in the history or the competing interpretations of Scripture. Instead, he showed that there was something more important than this. This was because he recognised that this whole argument was a bit of a red herring. It was brought up by this woman, not because this woman wanted to know the answer, but because speaking about her failed marriages and her present lifestyle was uncomfortable. She wanted to deflect the conversation away from her personal life. So she just threw this in, thinking this is going to take the conversation a completely different direction, and she'll be able to escape. She's really illustrating what Jesus spoke about in John chapter three, verse twenty. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People who have got secrets that they want to hide and hold on to, they don't want to come into the light of Jesus' presence, who knows everything about them. And so I think we need to learn from what Jesus did here. So many of our opportunities to share our faith are ruined when we get pulled into arguments and controversies. Now in our day, it's not going to be about Mount Gerizim in in, in Jerusalem. But it may be about Bible translations or different denominations or about the priesthood, or about the mass, or about Mary, or about the saints, or probably more recently about homosexuality, or about gender issues. It's not that the Bible doesn't have answers for these things, it does. But these issues are not the main issues. People are not lost or saved based on what they think about them. They're lost or saved based on what they think about Jesus. Remember John chapter 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains in him. And so we need to make sure that we don't get distracted by talking about these secondary issues and let people miss the opportunity to respond to Jesus. So Paul, he wrote a lot about this kind of thing. So he advised Timothy, uh, which was what some of the people one, a, a young person he was trying to mentor, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. Then he wrote to Titus, another young guy working in a church. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these are, are unprofitable and useless. So if, if you are like me and have a bit of an argumentative nature, you need to stop. Don't get drawn into these controversies. Don't get, get, get distracted on a detour of arguments and miss the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. So Jesus did not get caught up in the historical controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews. But instead, he turned it right around and used it as a wonderful opportunity to teach about a revolution in worship. First of all, he said that God is seeking worshippers. Look at verse 23. He spoke about the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. The Father seeks. Isn't that an amazing truth? That God is seeking people to worship him. He is eager for us to come to praise Him, to honour Him, to glorify Him and declare His majesty through our words and through our actions. As incredible as it seems, our worship matters to God. Now, this isn't because he is in need of it to cheer him up, because he's kind of sad. Or to overcome a kind of low self esteem because he's feeling kind of vulnerable and needs somebody to tell him how wonderful he is. Neither is it because he's arrogant or proud. Rather, it's because he alone is worthy of this worship. In his vision of the throne room of heaven, John saw twenty four elders who declared, You are worthy. Our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So, to worship God is the only proper response to the greatness and glory of God. In the light of all of his power, and all of his strength, and all of his might, and all of his majesty, and all of his love, and all of his compassion, and all of his grace, and all of his mercy. What else could we do but just to bow and declare His majesty and His worth and magnify His name? Why worship? Because God is worthy of it. But God's desire for us to worship is also an act of love. Because in worshipping God, We are blessed. When we worship God, we fulfill our highest calling as human beings. And through it, our joy is complete. Because we all praise what we value, don't we? Whether it's our soccer team, our family, our new car, our new phone, or whatever. Whatever. And when we praise those things that we really value, it doesn't only express our enjoyment of those things. It actually completes the enjoyment of them. We delight to praise them because our delight is incomplete until it's expressed in praise. And this is the same with our worship for God. Our worship doesn't only declare or express our joy in the Lord. It actually increases our joy. And it completes our joy. So David says in Psalm 9, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Worship is not something that we do out of a dry sense of duty or I suppose it's a Sunday morning and I need to come and worship God. Or I suppose it's, it's in the morning and I need to take some time to thank God for all He has. It's our joy. And as we do it, our joy is complete. Because it's expressed. So God is seeking us to worship Him because He alone deserves it. And we are blessed by it. But if we're going to do this in a way that honors God, then we need to understand the time in which we live. We need to understand the time. Jesus said, John uh, John 4 verse 21, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now we've seen before Jesus speaking about time in John's Gospel. Remember back in chapter 2, Jesus said to his mum, My time has not yet come. And we we refer to it there how many times John talks about the time hasn't come, and then the time has come, and it always points forward to the cross. The time of Jesus' death on the cross. The reason why Jesus came, the focus of His mission. And the cross will bring in a new era, a new time of how we worship God. No longer will it be focused on one location or another location. No longer will it require a temple or a priesthood or an altar or a system of sacrifices not needed anymore instead because of Jesus' death on the cross wherever we are in the world we are able to come right into the very throne room of heaven and worship God book of Hebrews chapter 10 says this we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new new and living way opened up for us Through the curtain, that is his body. So the argument between the Jews and Samaritans over sacred mountains or sacred buildings, well, that's obsolete. It's no longer needed. We don't need any of that. Because if we have trusted in Jesus and his death on the cross, then our sins have been forgiven. We've been declared righteous in God's sight. And we can come right into God's presence and worship Him. Wherever we are. Whatever time of the day or night. So you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of His darkness. Out of the darkness. And into His wonderful light we don't need a special place or building or person or ceremony to worship God if we, don't put, if we have put our faith in Jesus then we are a community of priests called to praise the one who called us out of the darkness of sin and into the, the light of his presence But if we believe that, if we accept that, then how we worship still matters. Jesus said, verse 23, Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. So first of all, we must worship the Father in spirit. So often people argue about the external forms of worship, don't they? The building, the songs, the the lighting, the posture, and all of that kind of stuff. But Jesus said that God is spirit. He's not physical. Rather, he's invisible, intangible. And so, to focus on the externals is to miss what true worship is all about. It's like arguing over whether you need to sing 21st century music or 19th century music whether we want to play the music with an organ or a guitar. As if God minds about those things, or God cares about those things, why would He? Why would one be more important than the other? Instead, God is spirit, so worship is really about a heart-to-heart connection with God. It's, it's about when we seek to honour Him and glorify Him with hearts that are filled With love and awe and passion for Him. That's what matters. But we can't produce that in ourselves. We can't just work ourselves into this this place of worshipping God. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, Flesh gives birth to flesh and the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So if we want to worship God in Spirit then we need to do this in the life and the freedom and the power that comes from the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. That is why worshipping in this way is only possible now. Because only now are we in this new age of the Holy Spirit's outpouring. Jesus had to die on the cross before the Holy Spirit could come and live within all of us who have faith in him so that we could worship him in spirit. But it's not just our hearts that matter when it comes to worship. We also need to worship the Father in truth. See, in verse 22, Jesus said to the women, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. The Samaritans had rejected the truth about God as revealed in the majority of the scriptures. So they didn't really know God. And you cannot worship someone you don't know. If I told you that I love my wife, and then told you that I believe that she is a six foot blonde haired, muscle, a rippling muscle Olympic weightlifting champion from Norway, Would you really think that I love my wife? I don't think so. I think you would say, you don't even know your wife. How can you love her? In the same way, we cannot say we love God if we don't know who He is. We might love the idea of God. But we cannot really love and honour God without knowing who He really is. And so what we think about God, what we know about God, matters. Truth, doctrine, beliefs matter. You can't just say, oh well, I just love God and I I don't worry about truth, I don't worry about the Bible, I don't worry about doctrine. You can't do that. Because what we believe matters. Jesus said we worship we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. In the past the Jews responded properly to the revelation of God as given in the Old Testament scriptures. So they knew God. They didn't know everything about God, but they knew God, so they responded to that truth. Of course, now we live in the greater era, a new era. Where God has been fully revealed through the person of His Son Jesus. Remember back in John chapter one, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Jesus has made Him known. If you ever want to, if somebody ever asks you, "What is God like?" There's a simple question, answer, isn't there? Jesus. Who is God? Jesus. That's who God is. And so to worship God in truth means that we worship in accordance with the truth that has been revealed by and embodied in Jesus. It's to honour and to praise God through Jesus in a way that's consistent with the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So, in true worship, we need spirit and truth. We need heart and head. We need passion and doctrine. This is the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. And this is only possible with a proper relationship with the Spirit giver and the truth revealer true worship needs to be focused on Jesus and this woman understood it to some extent see what she said in verse 25 I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes he will explain everything to us like all Samaritans she was waiting for the Messiah to come And she believed that he would be the ultimate revealer of truth. And she was right to think this. She just didn't know that her waiting time was over. So Jesus declared to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus made it absolutely clear for her. He is the Messiah. He is the the anointed one. He is the one who will explain everything. To her. But actually Jesus said a little bit more than that. This. Jesus literally says. I who speak to you am. The he has been added. By our Bible translators. To make it kind of more grammatically. Make it it mean eh, something. I who speak to you am. This is the first of seven. I am. Statements that Jesus made. in in John, there's the I am sayings and then there's the I am statements Jesus was saying I am he was revealing his true identity as the great I am the eternal self-existent one There claims to be none other than to be God himself and this is how we ultimately worship God it's through recognizing the true identity of Jesus. Because as the Son of God, Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only way for us to be able to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. As Jesus said in John chapter 14 and 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll see how this woman responded to this amazing truth and the incredible impact that she had on our, commu- on our community. But for this morning, this is one I was just to take home. Let's not get sidetracked by the trivial and the unimportant. And said, let's be the worshippers that the Father seeks, because the time has come so that we can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If we put our faith in Jesus, the Christ, the great I am. Let's pray.